Hello, everyone, and welcome to your latest edition of Jacobin Weekends. I am your host, Nando Vila. Anna Kasparian is off today because she's uh, she's doing something uh, she's doing something very scary. I don't even know if we can talk about it. Are we allowed to talk about it, Kale? Uh, I don't know. I was about to. Let's not talk about it. it. Let's not talk about it. Let's get, let's leave people uh, uh, intrigued. But yeah, she's doing something very very skinny. Um, so I am joined today by it's not, our it's, producer. She's tight roping across a volcano. Uh, yes, essentially, metaphorically, with piranhas. There's piranhas yeah. in the volcano. They're fire resistant piranhas uh, that they engineered in a lab specifically and for Anna sharks Kasparian with freaking laser beams. Laser on beams. Their head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm joined by producer Kale Brooks, who has got a big, big opportunity, dude. This is the big opportunity to jump in front. I know you've been like you've been champing at the bit for this. For years, literally years, you've been uh, hoping that finally your contributions will be recognized uh, and you get the shot at the chair. So uh, I hope you do okay. I, you know, don't fuck. No pressure. Nope. Don't fuck it up, Kale. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it's you know, it's only like the limelight. It's only the yeah. big cameras. You know. So yeah. Um, how are you feeling? You feeling okay about it? Oh, I'm feeling great. And regardless, history will absolve me. So. It's whatever, oh. you know, I think it'll be a good show. Uh, but yeah, I have a lot to say in a little bit about the state of left political parties. Nothing that no one else has, you know, not said. It's it's some, you know, this is not an original critique, but hopefully it's a helpful synthesis of kind of where left political parties have been in the last uh, and how they've transformed over the last few decades. So. Uh, I lost you. I, my internet crept out for a second, and now I'm back. So I don't know. I don't know anything that you just said um, in the, in your answer because I just literally like it froze, and now I'm back. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm excited for your segment. You, I mean, I'm sure you already talked about your segment and already introed it. Uh, is that true or no? Or yeah, you more or less, yeah. No, no, no. Okay, yeah, you already no. talked about. It. No, it's a good one. It's a good one. German elections. You know, history will, will absolve you. Um, um, we're going to be talking about a little bit about. Based in superstructure, uh, based off of uh, some questions we got and some comments, people asking us to um, expand on that. So I thought it was a good opportunity uh, since we have Pro- Professor Kale in the chair, um, and uh, and you know you know a lot about that shit. Uh, so, but first, Kale, we got to talk about the news because the news, the news, it never stops. It never stops. It always keeps going. And this week saw a lot of news. Um, with this uh, reconciliation package, the reconciliation bill. Um, It's been a week of furious internal parliamentary negotiations uh, within within the Democratic caucus. Um, You know, the Republicans are, uh, they're sitting this, they're on the sidelines in this one. Uh, The Democrats only have themselves to uh, deal with and to blame for the success or the failure of the reconciliation package. But it's been quite remarkable to see because um, while it is all kind of very inside baseball, it's not like we can really affect anything that uh, happens within it. Um, it was kind of interesting to see the progressive members uh, of the of the House, the so-called Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, hold the line. They really held the line amidst uh, pressure that would usually have caused them to cave um, instantly in recent years. But the basic outline is that the Biden has two main signature pieces of legislation that are 
sort of defining his first term. Um, one is this kind of bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, he was obsessed with making it bipartisan because he is a Senate institutionalist and believes in, you know, the idea of bipartisanship very uh, deeply. And so he created this this awful bill uh, that it was so bad that they can get even like a bunch of Republican senators to join uh, and support it. Like that's how bad it is that even Republicans are supporting it. Um, and at the same time, they created this larger $3.5 trillion over 10 years uh, reconciliation bill that would pass through reconciliation, which means that no Republicans are needed. Uh, and that was kind of the deal. We'll give you the awful uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill if you give us this pretty decent uh, $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Um, and those two bills were supposed to be linked together. They were supposed to pass together, um, even though they were separate pieces of legislation. And uh, as soon as, like, you know, the rubber hit the road, uh, conservative Democrats were like, no, 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 how about, we, how about we pass them separate? We'll pass the infrastructure one first. And then we'll talk about the reconciliation one. And Bernie and uh, Ilan Omar and uh, Rashida Tlaib, like the, the, the squad, AOC, they're like, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're doing them both together. That was the deal. Um, and basically, the conservative Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, tried to renege on the deal and force through a vote. And the progressives held the line. They held the line. Um for the first time, basically, in my lifetime, the left wing of the Democratic caucus um, was able to stand together and uh, basically throw enough sand in the gears to force the other side to come to the table in a negotiation. Um, this doesn't mean anything's going to happen. It doesn't mean that the bill is going to pass. It doesn't mean that uh, even if a bill does pass, that it's going to be any good. But in the short term, it showed that they could flex a little muscle um, which is a good thing in and of itself. Uh, Kale, I don't know how you read, how are you, you've been reading the, uh, the, uh, the intrigue in the halls of Congress. I, th I mean, I think your summary makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's important just to highlight just the position of weakness that the left is in, in these, in, in this, that effectively, if the bills were separated, if it was just all of the, uh, the expansion of Medicaid, uh, childcare, uh, you know, green energy programs, if all of that is on its own, it dies, there's no chance. And it might, mm -hmm. it might still be cut from, from this compromise deal that it's, you know, it's just the fact that because of our electoral system is set up such that every single individual politician is kind of a party unto themselves. They don't really have, you know, the party itself can't really discipline its members. Pelosi can't uh, say to the progressive caucus, Vote this way, or I'll kick you out of the party, and vice versa. The you know the progressive caucus that has no means of uh, you know keeping their members voting in a certain way. It's like pretty remarkable mm -hmm. that this has been working as you know so far as it has, and you know we might eat those words by the end of the day. We'll see, <laughs> but uh, you know we're recording on Friday, um, but it it is you know like you're saying it is pretty remarkable that this is happening now. That this is maybe. The first time in a you know in a very long time, in part because it's the first opportunity in a very long time for this kind of vote to happen or this kind of coordination to happen, uh, it sh you know it should have happened uh, under you know Obama in '09 when the Democrats took control of both houses, uh, you know, the House and the Senate. Um, and the problem there was that um, 
basically because they had because Obama and the Democrats had such large majorities in both chambers, uh, that really meant that the conservative Democrats had the majority in both houses, in both chambers. So like the left really didn't have any leverage, um, even though the Democrats broadly, you know, had much greater power at that time. Uh, and so, you know, that just speaks to the fact that like, we have something of a burgeoning left. It happens to be effective because of the institutional, because of the fact that Biden has only so much support in these, these bodies. And because of the fact that politicians can wield power, uh, at, at this very kind of individual level. Um, but really, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, I would guess like the last time I don't have a, a specific idea in mind, but it was probably like early seventies, like at the mm-hmm. the latest when something yeah. like when you had something like uh, a, a true kind of progressive wing of the democratic party that actually could fight back at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I think that, uh, um, it, you know, it's interesting that Ilan Omar is the, is the whip of the congressional progressive caucus. Um, and it seems like she um, and the leadership have, tried to in the past couple years uh, institute to the extent that they it's possible in the American system a um, a method to 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 essentially create that kind of coherent block um, within you know you talk about like how these politicians are parties unto themselves like they've tried to the extent that they can in the past couple of years create some sort of sense sense of like no if we vote as a block um, regardless of whether of what it is or whether regardless of whether an individual kind of agrees with it or not um we will in the long run have much more strength and power um and this is the first time really that that's been put to the test and it's been uh it's worked like again it's usually this would have this this kind of maneuver would have just crumbled at the first like you know you just flick at the at the thing and the whole thing just would have collapsed um but um, I, I think that, that it's like, again, it's by no means like a major victory or anything like that. But it is an interesting difference that has happened. And again, it, you know, it's 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 it shows just how much how much work has to go into even do this like kind of tiny little difference um, within the halls of power. Um, you know, think about like the last five or six years of left organizing of, you know, left media of of knocking on doors of the Bernie campaigns and all that stuff. And we're just seeing like a slight shift, but it is there and it's real. Um, Mm -hmm. And it could be the beginning of, uh, of something if you, you know, if, if this kind of continues, but it just shows just how difficult it is to um, really change the calculus of power and the balance of power um, within the halls of Congress uh, under current conditions. Yeah, well, just two more thoughts, maybe. The first is just that, you know, so in capitalism, of course, you know, politicians are going to be, uh, they're going to have the interests of capital in mind when they're making decisions, because of just the nature of the fact that capitalists own all the stuff, and the state is basically saying, hey, please, you know, please allocate resources this way, please, ta- you know, uh, give us this much in taxation so that we can do X, Y, Z. Um, that because of the separation of politics from the economy uh, between the state and, and, you know, capitalists, it does typically mean that politicians are going to be doing what they think is in the best interest of capitalists. 
now this is a somewhat um, uh, significant situation um, given the economic uh, condition that we're in. Uh, and I do think, you know, it, so in addition to that, there's, there's two other things. The fact that, you know, there really is no formal leverage on the side, on the left, uh, for left politicians in the way that there used to be when you had a labor movement or, uh, you know, in other countries where you have more formal mechanisms, institutional mechanisms for disciplining people. And so the fact that, uh, you know, this, the, the caucus has held together as long as it has, um, in the, in these negotiations and hopefully will be able to, you know, to force through these, these items through the, the bill, the Medicaid expansion, childcare, green energy, et cetera. Um, but the thing is that like the way capital operates right now is like, it, it, I think the good counterexample is someone like a, uh, a cinema or a mansion where like cinema and mansion do not have to think about what's in the interests of capital. They're probably just getting a check in the mail. Like that's like from every, everything we know about what's going on, like there's probably just very specific, you know, uh, investors who are paying them and saying, this is how you're voting you know, you don't have to think about it. Not that these people can think much anyways, but mm-hmm. so there it's, it's conceivable that like that method could be, you know, like there's nothing stopping that from happening to people in the progressive caucus. And that's, that remains the issue as we look forward to, you know, how to build on these wins um, that like these progressive politicians, unless there's institutions uh, that can safeguard, you know, their, their best intentions, let's say, um, it's very likely that they will probably, you know, it's, it's very easy for capital to just come in and, and kind of steamroll them and tell them how to vote. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention, contrasting this with the past again, is uh, I've been thinking a lot about, or I've been trying to read as much as I can about the, the first, you know, 200 days or so of FDR's administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when FDR came in, he also didn't have, you know, institutions. He didn't have a labor movement. He didn't have the things that, you know, I'm just saying right now we should have in order to be able to hold these politicians uh, to, you know, to the interests of working people. Um, He effectively was able to pass through his agenda. And I think it does speak to, it speaks to two things. One, you know, the kind of the, the chain loosening a little bit on politicians in a moment of economic crisis that, we are living through a moment where it does seem like there's maybe something, uh, something's more possible in the world. This is like the fact that we're even discussing, you know, Medicaid expansion or green job, green energy jobs, uh, you know, is pretty remarkable. And I think has a lot to do with, with COVID and and the economic fallout. Um, But it also has to do with the fact that, you know, whether or not this is, you know, dependent on that, that Biden is in fact uh, kind of holding to this program that he's also, he's in agreement that we should be pushing for. He probably, he does not agree with like what Bernie's like proposing wholesale. He does not agree with like everything that Jayapal is proposing, but he agrees with enough of it that like, he's not just, you know, bringing the hammer down and squashing this immediately. Uh, And again, for better or worse, it just, it is the fact, it is the case that, in American politics, the executive branch does have this kind of power that he is, you know, if we got the campaign Biden, I, I don't, you know, I, which we were expecting, I, you know, I'm, I would be very shocked to, to hear, you know, if you had told me a year ago that this is what Biden uh, is prioritizing right now, it, it wouldn't have made sense to me. And, and so, again, I don't know what that says, if that was something like, if he was just making, you know, 
real politic calculations of, you know, I got a campaign on this, even if I want to push for something else, or if the, you know, if COVID changed his politics, if Bernie has been persuasive, I don't really know. But the fact that Biden has been more open to, to you know, to the Progressive Caucus uh, and, and the demands uh, and not just, you know, uh, coming down, you know, on the side of whatever business wants is remarkable. And, you know, that's not to, you know, we don't have to say thanks to Biden just yet, but uh, it, it is significant and it, it, it presents opportunities for the left. And so we should see it as an opportunity rather than as, you know, uh, a congratulatory uh, thing for Biden or something. Well, you mentioned uh, Kirsten Cinema or Kirsten Cinema, I guess. Um, and uh, it's funny because, uh, you know, Axios a couple weeks ago ran this like hilarious piece in which they talked about her um, spreadsheets and how she has uh, Excel spreadsheets. And that's how she kind of decides what she votes on in the budget stuff or whatever. Um, this morning, they have a follow up uh, piece about Kirsten Cinema, um, which says, Kirsten Cinema's allies have some free advice for anyone trying to bully the wine-drinking triathlete into supporting Biden's $3.5 trillion budget bill. She doesn't play by Washington's rules, and she's prepared to walk away. It's like, oh, she drinks wine. Oh, she drinks just thri- triathlons. Uh, yeah, you can't bully this queen into supporting the thing that helps people. Uh, no, sir, Bob, no way. Um, yeah, she just, can't legally drive right now. She's just above the limit. <laughs> she's too she's drunk. She's just so yeah. wasted making these yeah. votes. <laughs> um, and then apparently, like, I'm, I'm seeing on Twitter right now that she just uh, left D.C. Um, so that's fun. Um, so, yeah, well, that's the state of play. Uh, you know, slight flexing of a muscle from the progressive caucus for the first time maybe ever uh and um but it's still unclear what's going to happen uh things maybe you know could go up could go down a lot of what have yous in between uh (laughs) but before we get into our segments kale uh we need to recognize our corporate overlords our sponsors at verso books we do are you ready um and uh we don't have October copy, but we're going to still do the read. We're going to do September. Should we just do the September <laughs> copy, yeah, even though we're in October? Pretend like it's, yeah, we're, screw it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, including October, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Conrad tote bag, for as long as you are a subscriber. All memberships are 50% off for your first three months. The Conrad tier is only $20 a month, and if you had joined in September, you would have gotten these four books. Everything, All the Time, Everywhere, How We Became Postmodern by Stuart Jeffries. Everything in Less, the novel In the Age of Amazon by Mark McGurl. Revolution in Intellectual History by Enzo Traverso. Work Without the Worker, Labor in the Age of Platform Capitalism by Phil Jones. I wonder what books there will be in October. But you know. Well, if you join the club, you'll get them. <laughs> and then we'll yeah, say you'll get them. Week. There'll be four. They usually do four, right? It's always four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Cool. Um, well, Nando, how about how about we? Uh, we're going to do a little theory before little uh, we're theory. joined by our guest in about forty yeah. minutes, which is Sam Moyne. Uh, he has a new book that we want to talk about. But before then, uh, I think I think our 
Yours is a little more theoretical. Mine's a, a little bit theory, but it's kind of more poli sci stuff. And so I think I think mm. they'll balance out. So how about how about you take it away and start Sounds with uh, you know a little little old school Marxism? Yeah, this same this was uh, due to popular demand. You know, a few weeks ago we discussed in passing uh, the Marxist framework of base and superstructure, and many of you in the chat asked for us to expand on it. And I thought since since Kale is sitting in Anna's chair today and he's the theory guy, we should discuss it in a little more detail. Uh, the basic idea of base and superstructure is that every single society in the world at any point in history consists of two basic elements, the base and the superstructure. And understanding this dynamic can really help uh, interpret events as they unfold. Uh, and this nifty little graphic I found online is a nice little visual aid. Uh, when we talk about the base, we're talking about the way a society is organized to produce things. So essentially, how does a society make the stuff it needs to sustain itself? What are the society's means of production and what are the relationships between people organized to uh, produce the stuff? And under capitalism, it's capitalists and laborers. Capitalists own the means of production and workers sell their labor power to capitalists in exchange for a wage. But there are other systems, for example, slavery, in which there are slave owners and then there are slaves who have no political freedom and are forced to work for the slave owners. Under feudalism, there was a different type of relationship in which the peasants worked the land in exchange for protection from the feudal lords. The peasants had a partial rights to had partial rights to the land and the lord shook them down for either taxes or a cut of the excess crops, but couldn't kick them off the land. And then, on top of that kind of economic engine, so to speak, there is something called the superstructure, which is essentially all the things that we do and tell ourselves to legitimize and reflect the base. Things like politics, the law, culture, education, religion, etc. The relationship between the economic underpinnings of society and the things the society tells itself are mutually reinforcing. The base determines the superstructure, but the superstructure reinforces the base. And one way that manifests itself is that, say, if you were to turn on the TV news in America in the year 2021, there'll be a whole lot of talking about a bunch of stuff. But it is always taken as a given that capitalism is just the way. It's almost like it's the natural order of things. To the extent that alternatives to capitalism are discussed, it is extremely rare, and it's usually in a way that makes even the consideration of an alternative to capitalism inherently ridiculous. And then another famous example is the role of religion. Under feudalism in Western Europe, Catholicism was the dominant religion. And the teachings of the church reflected and reinforced the feudal mode of production, namely the submission to a hierarchy, and that an individual life essentially didn't matter all that much. Under Catholicism, one's relationship to God was filtered through a hierarchical church. But then Protestantism came around, and it's not a coincidence that Protestantism took took root at about the same time and in about the same places that capitalism took root in, namely Northern Europe and England in the 16th and 17th centuries. Under Protestantism, the individual has a direct relationship to God, which is perfect for a consumer market society. Protestantism also teaches the Protestant work ethic, where work is a good end in itself, which again, fits in nicely with capitalism's need for workers. And then in the 1930s and 40s, there was a time of mass labor unions and labor militancy. This was reflected in the culture at the time, especially in Hollywood, which is where I live. A huge chunk of the writers in Hollywood were communists, and it's wild to see some of the movies that came out in that era compared to what comes out today. One striking movie is a movie called uh, How Green Was My Valley. It's a movie about a labor dispute at a mining town in Wales during the Victorian era. 
And it's not exactly as well remembered as other movies from the classic Hollywood era. But How Green Was My Valley actually beat out Citizen Kane for Best Picture at the Oscars in 1941. Check out this clip. Come into Washington. May, may we speak first, sir? Yes. They did not give you the real reason for this cut. We've been expecting it for weeks, ever since the iron works at Dowlis closed down. What have the iron works to do with us? The men from Dowlis came to the colliery willing to work for any wage. So all our wages must come down. And this is only the beginning. Watch now. They'll cut us again and still again. Until they have this. As empty as their promises. Nonsense. A good worker is worth good wages and he will get them. Not while there are three men for every job. Why should the owners pay more if the men are willing to work for less? Because the owners are not savages. They are men too, like us. Men, yes, but not like us. Would they deal with you just now, sir, when you went to them? No. That is because they have power and we have none. How will we get power then? From the air? No. From a union of all the men. Union, is it? I never thought I'd hear my own sons talking socialist nonsense. But it's sense. Good sense. Unless we stand together. I've had enough of this talk. But, Father, it does... Come and wash now. Your good mother will be waiting. Can you imagine that kind of movie at the Oscars today? Like, it's just, it's like literally inconceivable. But the Hollywood blacklist of communists can be seen as an effort to destroy this kind of culture. In a way, the rulers were trying to alter the superstructure to reflect the kind of economic base that they wanted. This was a little battle in the broader and ongoing class struggle, which according to Marx is the engine of history. So in essence, the base is the way a society is organized to produce things, which shapes that society's ideas, culture, politics, etc. Those ideas then work to maintain and reinforce that productive organization, and it does it through soft measures like propaganda, culture, and the like, but also also sometimes more repressive measures like the police or the prison system. And now, Kale, come on the screen and tell us why it's all wrong. Uh, no, I don't want to say it's all wrong. Uh, no, I think I think that was useful and it's it's comprehensive. It explains. Um, like the fact that these things have a relationship uh based in superstructure i think is is one of these things that is taken from marx and is like um one of these very esoteric concepts that like if you if you actually know what it is then you're in the club and that's kind of the exact opposite of what marxism is it's a cool club it's a (laughs) cool club the cool kids Uh, the cool kids are all in it uh, we tell ourselves that but i mean but the point like it's it's supposed to be useful. Like this is supposed to explain the world in a way that it then becomes useful, whether it's for, uh, you know, individual people, for ordinary working class people uh, to to navigate just the, you know, the craziness of everyday life and, and understand, you know, what, why, what are the actual forces that are, you know, putting me in this situation that like, mm-hmm. m- you know, means I'm the loser in almost every, you know, uh, transaction with a boss or a landlord or, um, you know, sometimes even as a consumer that, you know, you're like, shit, I have to buy all these like products just to get by. Um, so either that or, you know, just like more broadly and kind of building up like uh, a framework for the world that. Um, so I think the the base superstructure model, it's it's useful. It's I think minimally it's just it's a metaphor. Right. It's not it's not like hard and fast, like these things are here and these things are here. It's supposed to say that 
in society, the things around us, uh, we there is like a certain rule to life uh, uh, that we as Marxists call materialism, which is that mm-hmm. ideas in our head don't just live on their own. They don't the you know the phrase people like is a life unto them themselves or unto them unto their whatever unto themselves. Because uh, the point is that because the thing is that a lot of people we were just talking about this on Jacobin show last this past week that you know the unfortunately they don't think of it in exactly these terms but effectively like what most liberals and conservatives do when they think about history and why did things happen the way they happen is they come up with uh, an idealist uh, framework where they say mm-hmm. well someone had a bad idea and they acted upon it. Uh, there was some bad ideas going on their head. They talked about it. They shared it with someone else. They picked up that bad idea and then the bad idea spread. And now you get changes in the world. And um, obviously, you know, like in some ways, like there's something about that. That's obviously true insofar as like, yes, you know, I can, I can tell you that I'm going to do something later and then go do it. Uh, And then you will go, you know, you'll say like, oh, Kale had the great idea of getting tacos and he went out and got tacos. Maybe I should go out and get tacos. That sounds like a good idea like that. Obviously, that can happen. But that's not what this is trying to explain. It's trying to say that actual social forces, the, the actual relations in society that are real, that are not a metaphor. Class is a real it's an abstract thing, but it's real. It does, in fact, determine what you own. And therefore, what you have to do to make a living day after day, week after week, month after month, you know, Mm -hmm. the choices that are in front of you in order to sustain yourself within the social system, uh, that social system imposes limitations. And then you in that situation have to try to understand why do I have these choices? And, uh, you know, just it's something about human nature where we, we end up. Uh, applying kind of a cultural interpretation of it. Um, you know, the culture is culture. There's tons of different cultures in the world, uh, but there still is capitalism, despite the differences that um, it ends up showing that the social relations of capitalism can live with a number of different kinds of cultures and political institutions and religions, norms, traditions, what have you, as long as they do not interfere with the primary thing that capitalism is all about, which is, capitalists under competition forced to make a profit as long as they are able to make a profit and therefore you as the worker can end up showing up to work the capitalist does not care what the religion is they like the you know the state doesn't care in fact they might find it useful to have religions and certain political systems that like the base superstructure model is saying in fact ends up uh, reinforcing the structure and says like why this is just, why it's morally just, but it doesn't create the the base as the as the model implies. And so it's it's useful just to think of it in this kind of metaphorical sense of politics, religion, like they don't just live on their own; they are tied to specific economic uh, mm-hmm. structures, social structures. Yeah, I mean, I think like when you when you uh, mentioned that like liberals and conservatives both think of like the, you know, how history happens, like through a series of like people having bad ideas, um, the the I think most uh, probably quintessential example of that is uh, Hitler and the rise of fascism, like how liberals and conser- both liberals and conservatives both uh, look at the rise of Hitler and fascism uh, in Europe in the 1930s. Um, as just like, wow, that guy really had some bad ideas and a lot of too many people, just too many people believed them. 
to and then bad things happen. Right. And I think that that was reflected a lot in this kind of, you know, I, I think like uh, small but interesting uh debate on the left uh, over like you know trump and and fascism and like whether like one six uh, january 6th was like a fascist coup or something um and uh and i because i think it, it reflects a lot of the same um holes in in the interpretation of something in that fascism uh in the 1930s um emerged basically as a method for um capitalists to resolve a crisis that was uh that was threatening it you know like that there was a real kind of that there was a real challenge to capitalism from a large you know socialist movement um that had you know achieved victories in 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 some parts of the world um and that you know they would prefer to you know live in a sort of liberal society uh but when push came to shove and there was an actual threat they were like no 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 we can do the fascism too you know, we'll do the fascism to maintain this kind of system of of production um, in, instead of like, you know, exploring an alternative. Um, and I think that when you look at something like Trump and the, um, um, you know, the debate of like over whether he was a fascist or not, I mean, I don't know if that it really matters, but the but the, I think the, the big kind of Trump card, for lack of a better term, to uh, argue against it is that there was no real alternative threat to uh, to the system that there was no need for the system to resort to to fascism it's kind of like their uh break you know in case of emergency break glass button um when when the system is really under threat um right. and uh you know that that just wasn't the case uh in the last you know five years or whatever yeah no exactly i think that's that's a good example to I'm going to give an even more provocative example actually uh no i i can talk you more just, provocative just than little... the nazis yeah. If okay, so my sense, and I could be wrong. Uh, I'm not a liberal, but uh, I love a lot of liberals, and uh, they're friends, family. I know these people. I think I know them. Um, insofar as anyone person can know, can you really person. know anyone? Yeah, can you yeah, really know. <laughs> know anyone? Truly, that's a whole okay. other show. But if I, if I right now on this show, actually just said the N word. I think liberals would think I'm not going to <laughs> hold on, hold on. I'm not going to, but if I did, uh, I really think liberals would think that I have contributed some, you know, in some way to the expansion of something called white supremacy. Uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, if, if I took it one step further and like started saying, I would started calling certain people, you know, that word. And I, you know, uh, I started saying, you know, really horrible, hateful things. Okay. You know, the fact that I'm on, a YouTube channel, you know, there's maybe some credence to the argument, but even if I did it alone, if it, like cameras off, we're no longer live, just me and you joking around after the show as we do. And, and I happen to say the N word, I think liberals would say, I don't do that. I think, I, I think liberals would say that like, Kale, you have contributed to white supremacy. You've like added to like this big, like evil pool that exists in society that floats above us all. That is like this, terrible cloud that it's almost it's like truly a specter in their minds of like this ghost that haunts us all um and what i would say is that makes no sense like it really doesn't because white supremacy doesn't come out of you know people with bad ideas people with bad ideas is the result of actual structures and systems and institutions 
that uh, that create inequality. That uh, you know, the fact that like when we when we talk about like what is unequal, you know, when it comes to race in America, like it has to do with material economic things. It has to do with the fact that African Americans live in you know worse housing, in poor poor zip codes that have bad jobs, don't have good education. That um, you know, when they go to to see a doctor, uh, you know, the doctor might not, you know, there's. Ariella has told stories on the show. I'm sure people have like friends or people, people have been in these situations themselves where, uh, you know, a doctor approached by a, a black patient, uh, doesn't know how to handle that or treats them poorly or, you know, um, treats them as a minor or something, something really disgusting that like, but that's still like, that's a, that's a problem of institutions. Like that's still not even a problem of like bad ideas. Like we need institutions that put, you know, uh, that basically reallocate resources and power such that uh, these inequalities, um, both in material terms and then in the aftermath of that, in how people are in fact treated in society, that those change, but it doesn't come from, you know, changing the ideas in people's heads one one person at a time by, you know, telling them that actually you're a racist and you need to like get rid of that idea. Don't say that bad word. I mean, don't, you know, don't try to just don't be a dick. Like, don't like say the N word just to like be provocative. Um, But like, the point is that like, that is not really the fight that like the real thing is like the actual relations, the actual like who owns what in society and to what degree. And once you change that, then perhaps not overnight. It's not like an immediate thing, but I'm pretty I'm pretty certain that if you change the actual economic inequality when it comes to something like race, uh, racial ideology would not be able to have a life on its own. It mm-hmm. would eventually die. It would feel anachronistic when someone says something uh, that is that we understand as racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good uh, that's a good example. Um, all right, Kale, you're up, dude. Does that be fascism? <laughs> yeah, right. The N word. Yeah. The, N- the <laughs> Nazis and the other N-word. Um, well, but if we were in Germany right now, things would be a little different. And so, actually, this is a good segue because I want to talk about Germany. <laughs> it would be. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I'm producing and presenting, and so I apologies if there's a little bit of a stutter. But, anyways. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, something that just happened in this last week. And in order to talk about that, uh, it's important to get to kind of a broader topic, which is what is a left political party? Is a left political party a party that holds certain universalist left wing principles and advocates for socialist programs? Or is a left, uh, left party a party that sees the working class as the group of people who are not only... Uh, who not only have the greatest interest for an egalitarian, peaceful world, but have the greatest latent power to change the status quo. Uh, Workers built the world. A left party says they should also run it. Or is a left party a party that calls itself a left party? Well, so this past week, Germany uh, actually just held an election. And for those who don't know, Germany is the fourth largest economy in the world, and the heart of the, the European Union. So what happens there actually matters quite a bit. Uh, historically, the party that represented workers uh, was the German Social Democratic Party, or the SPD. I'm going to refer to it as the SPD because that's 
what you call it, for those in the know. Uh, between the 1870s and the 1910s, the SPD saw a meteoric rise, quickly becoming the largest party in Europe, both in terms of membership and popular vote. Uh, but despite consistently garnering the most votes, they never governed in leadership in Germany because the ruling class did what they could to limit the SPD's seats in parliament. And then if we fast forward to, the, uh, to post-World War II, uh, the party had pretty radically changed at that point. Uh, by the end of the 1970s, the party had hemorrhaged much of its working class membership. The party had since then uh, been in massive decline. The party since then has, has been in massive decline, both electorally and in its commitment to a world run by and for workers. So this recent election actually saw a reversal of fortunes for the Social Democrats. It appears likely as of now that the SPD's candidate, Olaf Scholz, will be replacing Angela Merkel as the next prime minister. But there's two problems with that. The first is that the SPD's small victory means that they will likely have to form a governing coalition with parties to its right. But more importantly, uh, the SPD is no longer the party of working people in Germany. In fact, and you know, I left this part out of the story a moment earlier, in the early 2000s, uh, when they, uh, the SPD was in fact in control of the government and were the party that ushered in cuts to social security and harsh labor market reform to the benefit of business. Uh, it's not all too different from the story of you know, Bill Clinton's Democratic Party in the 90s or of Tony Blair's New Labor Party. The left in the SPD then actually broke away with the party after that and joined some smaller socialist groups to form a new party called Delinka, which literally translates to the left. Now, this past week's election results were especially bad for Delinka. According to Alexander Brentler and Jacobin, quote, the party's support was halved from 9.2% to 4.9%, thus slipping below the 5% threshold to enter parliament. Its continued presence with 39 uh, members of parliament, down from 69, is only assured due to a quirk of German electoral law. Because it won three first-past-the-post constituencies in Berlin and Letzbig, it was awarded the rest of its seat share according to proportional representation. Therefore, a few thousand votes in two eastern cities saved it from near-total electoral obliviation at the federal level. Uh... They did so bad across the country that they almost didn't get seats in government and were saved by an arbitrary electoral rule, something that was probably put in place to suppress the left in years past. But as Brentler said, in the city of Berlin, Die Linke got their highest electoral results in, the, in their country with 11.4%. And that's significant because they simultaneously also held a referendum in Berlin on whether or not to nationalize thousands of housing units. Das Votum heißt auch, wir Berlinerinnen wollen die Überführung von unseren Wohnungen in Gemeineigentum. Wir wollen, dass damit keine Profite mehr gemacht werden und wir wollen selbst über unsere Wohnungen bestimmen können. So that referendum ended up passing with over 56% of the vote. And that's obviously a victory and should be celebrated. Uh, but here's how one oddly named activist characterized the referendum results. It's just, it's just crazy. I mean, we see that through the whole city, basically, we got a lot of votes. Even though in these areas we don't, where we don't have a majority, there's never, uh, there's no place where we like lose by landslide. And this is crazy. That's that's, yeah, it shows how much we change the city. Well, Kale, is it really the case that the left changed the city? Uh, as it turns out. 
More than one million Berlin voters opted for the socialization of corporate-owned housing. But the Greens and Die Linke, the only major parties that do not openly plan to thwart the results of the referendum, together scored under 600,000 votes. It seems that Berliners who have had experience with good quality public housing over the past few decades decided to vote for greater decommodified housing. And of those who voted in favor, almost half decided they didn't want to vote for the parties that would actually implement that plan. So how do we explain that? Uh, Well, I mean, one answer could be that we could call the the people of Berlin stupid. um, And this is a pretty common response to working people not voting the way you'd like. Uh, But if you really think working people are stupid, then you shouldn't waste your time with left politics. If, however, you're serious about changing society, it's worth considering why working people have been so thoroughly separated from the left in socialist politics. And one of the greatest manifestations of that separation has been the complete refocusing of left-wing parties away from the working class and towards the middle class. So in a party like Germans, Germany's Die Linke, only 6, 6.6% of trade union members voted for the party uh, this past week, compared to 17% Uh, just in 2009. The trend has been global. Parties that traditionally represented or were connected with trade unions have steadily and unrelentingly lost working class and union support over the last few decades. Some working people have moved to the right, it's true, uh, but overwhelmingly the working class has disengaged from party politics. This is true in Germany, it's also true in the US, it's true in the UK, it's true in most of the developed world that at one point had something of uh, you know, an active left-wing uh, politics in the 20th century. This has in large part been a result in the transformations of global capitalism since the post-war period. I only really can summarize the sequence of events because the scope is so large, but it's important to first say that by all accounts, the 20th century saw a massive expansion of what we call the middle class. Uh, early Marxists predicted the world's population would divide into those who labor for a wage and those who live off those who, wait, who labor for a wage, uh, but, they didn't, but they didn't foresee a group of people who sit somewhere in between. As capitalists took over more and more of the labor process, dictating exactly how working people are supposed to work, at what pace, with what tools, with what technology, it meant that the mental, the creative, and the administrative aspects of work were carved out and professionalized, and voila, you get the middle class. Uh, Their increase in size, which is, you know, uh, at least for the U.S., it's roughly about 20% of the population, uh, would come to play an oversized role in politics. The other massive shift that occurred mid-century was the global integration of markets. As the entire globe became capitalist, the vast majority of the world's population was turned into market-dependent workers. And this became important because capitalists could and were now forced to compete at a global scale. Uh, Capital could move globally. You can go across borders. Uh, Human beings, uh, normal working people, uh, it was a lot harder. And for most people, they don't end up moving. Some people do. And this is, you know, an outcome of this, this transformation. Um, the late 60s and early 70s also saw a major economic crisis. Inflation was going up, profit rates were going down, and more and more people were becoming unemployed. And the response on the part of capitalists was an assault on unions and welfare state programs. Uh, It's not worth going into in much detail, but it's important to understand that from their perspective, this is how they understood why inflation and why unemployment uh, were were, uh, persistent. They said... uh, Basically, it's that the state and these unions have gummed up the the workings of the machine uh, and, you know, 
the Keynesian methods no longer work. Uh, so we're just going to go back to, you know, uh, basically this is Milton Friedman's moment where it's just free market all the way. So this had a special bearing on left parties. Uh, a left political party in office is already always in unfriendly territory for the simple reason that the state and, and which I'm using the state and government interchangeably, the state and capitalism is dependent on capitalism chugging along. If the economic system goes into crisis, then the politicians will be and typically have been the first to take the blame. But in addition to that, socialists face an additional constraint. As Adam Shavorsky wrote in the early uh, 1980s, uh, the combination of minority status with majority rule constitutes the historical conditions under which socialists have to act. This subjective condition imposes, imposes upon socialist parties a choice. The choice is that socialists must choose between a party uh, homogenous in its class appeal, but sentenced to perpetual electoral defeats and a party that struggles for electoral success at the cost of diluting its class character. So to compete electorally, parties historically found that being focused exclusively on the working class, if you're a socialist party or a labor party, that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's why you became a party in the first place against, uh, you know, the liberals and the conservatives. Um, you're supposed to be exclusively focused on the working class. That came at the expense of winning more votes. And so to put it another way, um, also going back to Shavorsky, he says, quote, the choice between class purity and broad support must be lived continually by social democratic parties, because when they attempt to increase their electoral support beyond the working class, these parties reduce their capacity to mobilize workers. How are you going to get all these new you know, middle class people into the party if all you're talking about are working class issues? Uh, it's this is the, the contradiction that uh, social democratic parties ended up facing. Um, and because you're in a democracy, you do want to get as many votes as possible. So um, parties of all ideological and constituent backgrounds found that in order to govern in capitalism, especially a globalizing capitalism, they had to do what's in the interest of capital, especially when it's in crisis. So for about 30 years, left-wing parties were kept in check by the organized working class. This is what gave them their power, the fact that they represented working class people and they can therefore call upon the power of working class people, the threat to strike uh, when when they were trying to push their, their programs against the whims and the, the, uh, the priorities of capital. Um, and, you know, if they, if, because of, if workers strike, uh, then it harms profit rates. So it's in the interest when you have a strong labor movement uh, for capital to, you know, uh, it becomes a, an actual fight now rather than just like the capital steamrolling over everyone else. But with the defeat of the labor movement in the second half of the 20th century and globalization outpacing left policymakers throughout the 70s, politicians across the board ended up accepting austerity. Even the parties once committed to advancing the workers' movement were now constrained. No left program to deal with economic crises and an increasing disorgan disorganized working class no longer capable of providing the economic muscle a left party needs to govern. And so finally, we've reached the transformation of class parties into catch-all parties, people parties, run by all these newly generated professionals vying, for specific, vying specifically for professional votes. There's also, there's a good piece by uh, Friends of the Show, uh, Melissa Nascheck and Ben Fong, that's in Catalyst, on this exact issue of um, the uh, rise of NGOs in the second half of the 20th century and how they've come to dominate uh, all of all of our politics. But not going to get into that in a second. We've done 
there's a show on it. You should look for it um, in our archives. But this political system where political differences are sidelined for the governance uh, for capital's sake, uh, for governance for capital's sake, basically just governing you know, to the best of their ability for the interests of capital, is what Peter Mayer has referred to as ruling the void. And so he writes that public policy is no longer so often decided by the party or even under its direct control. Instead, with the rise of the regulatory state, decisions are increasingly passed to nonpartisan bodies that operate at arm's length from party leaders the non-majoritarian or guardians institutions. Again, it's a lot of the NGOs I was just talking about. This is modern populism. All the political personalities, all the movements of movements, all the social media posting, all the massive cultural divides between the working class and urban professionals sits on the massive rotting carcass of social democracy. And as Anton Yeager and Arthur Borelio write in Catalyst, Contemporary populism both expresses and reshapes the relationship between state and society in an era of neoliberalism. Rhetorically, appeals to homogenous uh, people pan out precisely because precise previous social markers of class, religion, and status have been eroded and have made citizens more receptive to new categories. Populism remains a surface manifestation here. The underlying factor is a lack of intermediation. The disappearance of organs that previously stood between citizens and the state and mediate citizens' relationship to those states. It shouldn't be surprising then that the left parties, because they're parties, have experienced the same transformation. Die Linke uh, formed out of a revulsion to the pro-business orientation of the SPD, and then it ends up catering to the middle class. Uh, to return to the article from uh, Brentler, its self-conception in recent years has been to provide a relatively neutral platform for the advancement of a diverse set of activist causes, uh, advocates of this approach within the party have long uh, depicted it as necessary modernizing steps, insisting that the influx of younger, progressive, and highly politicized members would rejuvenate an aging party once dominated by older working class members from East Germany. Friend of the show, Lauren Balhorn, identified this earlier this year in, in his coverage of the 2021 Delinka Party Congress, where he said... The central message was not any specific policy position on Delinka's campaign platform, but rather the diversity of its new leadership and the unassailability of its pro-LGBTQ, feminist, and anti-racist credentials. The curation of Delinka's image often struggles to distinguish between moral principles and strategic priorities, fostering an approach that essentially says all issues are equal impor- equally important. The task of a modern socialist party is to function as a movement of movements, or in the party, or as the party describes itself, a party in movement. But what concretely does this mean? What kind of strategic levers can it identify and bolster its hopes of one day taking power and reshaping society? We're living in both the legacy of massive changes in global capitalism and the former and former left victories. Socialists and trade unionists were the driving force that gave us voter enfranchisement, social security, the welfare state, uh, and social equality, political equality, civil rights. Those projects have civilized society writ large. But when the working class has been decimated for 40 years and the left today is coming alive in light of massive inequality, the politics of socialism and the left are thoroughly stripped of their class focus. Issues of working class oppression and exploitation in the hands of professionals becomes all about identity and upward career advancement. And to working people, this this shit is insulting. Middle class people trot out these massive platforms covering every possible issue and lather it up with social justice language and NGO-inflected etiquette. But the only way out is through mass political action focused on the working class. 
the middle class people with what I just described have no chance up against capital. The left has to understand that unless it's pri- unless it prioritizes the bread and butter issues that workers are in desperate need of, and unless they actually make priorities uh, in, in the way that Nye Bevan, the founder of the NHS in Britain, said socialism uh, is the, the religion or priorities is a religion of socialism. Unless they do that, they will lose and lose again. Eventually, they might not even be saved by some arbitrary minoritarian electoral rules like they were in Berlin and Leipzig. So, Nando, um, those are my thoughts on on the left and on, on the Delinke election results. I, it's, I think it's a, it's a story that keeps on being told across, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic. It's um, just the perpetual, there's certain constructural constraints uh, that force political parties into these these situations. And um, it explains why the left, you know, in the 21st century is the way it is. It's not, you know, that these people just don't care enough. Uh, it actually has, a, it, it results from, you know, the conditions of both workers and of capital. Um, you know, and I said that like it was uh, like some great insight, but that's just like, that's just like vulgar Marxism. <laughs> yeah. Contradictions abound, uh, and uh, and it just seems it seems like a double bind uh, in a way, uh, very difficult to get out of. But um, but yeah, I mean it's 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 very you know it's very interesting look. I mean because I think like we tend to look at these things uh, in such isolation. Um, you know, you were picking on uh, the German left party Delinka, uh, but you know this could apply to almost any almost any country uh in advanced democracy and advanced capitalism um and the and the broad strokes of it would be remarkably similar um so it strikes me as like something very structural uh but uh should we uh should we bring on the guest is he ready yeah let's do it we got him. all right folks we got him (laughs) we got him well i'm very pleased to welcome back to the show returning champ Samuel Samuel Moyne. Samuel Moyne is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. He's also written for Jacobin and has published a number of books, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, and Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. His latest just came out. It's hot off the press. Came out in September. It's called Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Samuel, thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me again. So uh, I guess uh, we could start off, um, you know, by asking you, what's the main, what's, what's the, what's your book about, dude? What's, uh, what's your, what's your main argument? What are you talking, what's, why should we read it? Like, what are we doing? (laughs) Well, so this is, this book is inspired by uh, Barack Obama's presidency. uh, Mm. And it, 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 is it troubled me that he uh, ran as a kind of anti-war candidate uh, and instead reinvented the war on terror. The first form of that war, George W. Bush had started, invaded two countries, occupied them with big armies. Obama ran against the Iraq war uh, and came into office and expanded the war on terror and changed its form. Uh, and in particular, started withdrawing troops, which, you know, Joe Biden, his one-time vice president, just completed. But that didn't mean 
no war. Actually, it meant in a way more war in more places. And what I focus on uh, is how he attempted to compensate for his expansion of the war by promising that it would be fought humanely. And actually, he did impose rules on the new tools of this second form of the war on terror, special forces and armed drones that would, uh, at least in theory and sometimes in practice, reduce civilian casualties, actually even beyond what the laws of war require. And so what I decided to do is write a book about how it happened that America ended up in, in endless war and how we think of this new thing that Obama gave us, a humane form of it, in the kind of broad sweep of uh, American history. Right. So I want to uh, stick on this for a second, um, because uh, like you're saying, there's you're saying that there's some kind of transformation that happens under the Obama era. Um, but if I'm I think I'm correct that you've in the past, uh, for instance, in the New York Times had mentioned uh, Bush Sr. As, um, as as in continuity with this this turn to more humane war. And so uh, the question is just, you know, how do we characterize war in the past, you know, over the course of the let's say the last, I mean, war has changed so dramatically over the, the last century, but, um, you know, prior to this transformation and then what specifically, what aspects of war have changed uh, that have led us to this moment? Good. So, you know, I, I tell a long story and a short story. The long story kind of goes back to the 19th century when people first kind of imagine the possibility uh, of making war more humane, first by protecting soldiers in a certain way. Um, and later in the 20th century by reducing harm for civilians. Um, of course, war was brutal for a long time. And the possibility for Americans to make this move, a kind of global war that would become humane under Obama, depended on Americans kind of embracing global hegemony um, in the 1940s. But of course, that didn't make their wars humane by itself. Actually, it just made them kind of the heirs of the colonial warfare that European empires had fought for centuries. And those wars were brutal. Of course, both those old empires and the new American one used the airplane. And there were no constraints on its use, including in direct targeting of civilian populations. So something big changed. And my thesis is that um, the change begins before 9-11. Uh, and when George W. Bush commits the country to fighting the war on terror brutally, including by restoring torture, it was kind of the last gasp of something that was already on the way out before 9-11. And so Obama then can capitalize on the fact that we've stopped opposing American war, but we have long since started to try to control the way it's fought. Um, and offer something, you know, technologically new, but kind of morally familiar to Americans. So to go back before 9-11, I think it's really important that Vietnam goes so badly uh, and the My Lai massacre caps it. Now, it happens at a time when there's already an anti-war movement. And in real time, Milai means that activists can intensify their anti-war pressure and end the war. Something radically different would have to happen after 9-11.
when Abu Ghraib is revealed, including by the same reporter as in Vietnam. But that just leads to like the debugging of the program of endless war. Um, in the 1970s, My Lai is still fresh in people's minds, including in the minds of significant people in the military. And Americans make a decision in this period. They reject George McGovern, the Democrat who's, who's run on a peace candidacy after Vietnam. And both parties begin to reclaim the necessity of American war. But there are new humanitarians who insist on more humane war. And the military itself, to manage public relations, agrees to follow rules. Um, and that's why when 9-11 happens, torture is so offensive. Uh, it's been kind of common in American history, but suddenly it raises hackles. War does not. Uh, and the result is kind of tragic because Obama understands that after Bush, just by not being Bush, he can say, we've given up torture. We're pivoting to the new form of war with special forces and drones, but don't worry, we won't kill any civilians and people buy it. And the result is that even today, uh, Joe Biden has purified the, the result, finally getting the last troops out of Afghanistan while promising to fight endless humane war against terror. How much of that do you think is the um, the sort of more, like how, uh, I guess in terms of the acceptance uh, from the American people um, is the uh, moral case for humane war and how much of it is just the fact that you know we don't I don't got to go fight it you know I don't give a shit you know, like how much of it is that the fact that they just don't that we're not asked to to sure. make any sacrifice that like it just makes it like easier to be out of sight out of mind. It's, it's a huge, you know, factor. And, uh, you know, the, the abolition of the draft was kind of central to setting up that possibility and the move away from heavy footprint war to, to a kind of war in which you barely need troops or don't at all, um, you know, allows citizens and Congress to kind of look the other way. So I'm not trying to kind of give you a, 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 a total account of the, the endurance of American war. I just think that for some people, a sizable number, um, this these claims of humanity really mattered. And I think we know that because the times when Obama moralizes about the war, first in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech in 2009, and then incredibly um, in his dramatic defense of drone warfare in 2013 at the National Defense University, he, he kind of dwells at length on the importance of the fact that Americans are fighting their war in, in humane and legal ways. Um, now, I talk a lot in the book about how actually the, the law that Americans used to care about and help build that kept states from going to war has been lost. And Obama helped shred it. But it's, it's really important that when it comes to the law that constrains how you fight once you're at war, whether you can torture, how many civilians you can kill, Obama embraced it and said, 
this makes it okay. And the fact that he placed such an emphasis on this means either he was trying to fool himself or fool a lot of people in the audience. I think the latter may be both, but it's important. Not that it's not everything. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's, um, it's always a, a nice little reminder when, when we're looking at politics to say like, oh, yeah, these are like, they're institutionally set up to be pathological liars. Like these people have to lie all the time, because that's the only way that like, these state functionaries can actually keep all these interests, uh, you know, uh, in good graces to, to not upset one set of capital against another, etc. Um, and then also have to, you know, it, this, it wraps it all up in the the notion of the nation or of the you know the the national interest or something, right. um, which of course are just very ideological and kind of fluffy terms. But um, I do want to because you okay, so you introduced um, Vietnam a moment earlier uh, and the uh, significance of the anti war movement um, and uh, effectively the the political costs that that put on to politicians, where now their choices, like you're saying, certain things are now off the table. And so I wanted to maybe get a greater account of what you think are kind of the the, the factors that are causing this this transformation. Um, so that's one of them. Um, I'm curious also, you know, the, you know, the greater transformations of, for instance, how uh, the security state is funded and then like the resources that it has, the careers that these people have, the institutional requirements. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how has that affected uh, these decisions and what politicians, maybe the range of possibilities so that you can get, you know, someone like Obama or a Biden that is maybe at least rhetorically a little more dovish. And then someone who's like much more hardline, you know, within the democratic party, at least like Hillary Clinton, but obviously the Republicans have had even more, you know, uh, bloodthirsty politicians. And so how, how, what, how do we, uh, find maybe like the, the limitations of the frame that those options sit within, if that makes sense. No, it, it, it's a great way of, of getting in into kind of the heart of this. I'll just mention that I, while I, of course I totally agree with your skeptical take on Obama, what, what I do in the book is look just so carefully at these speeches where, you know, at, 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 as a kind of public moralist, he's, he's willing to go pretty far. It's not, the usual boilerplate. And it, it was really important at the second speech I mentioned in 2013 that he's heckled and interrupted by Medea Benjamin uh, of Code Pink, a peace activist, and, and Obama goes off script. And as I discuss in the book, you know, he's, he's very happy to say, you know, endless war will be self-defeating and have troubling, you know, domestic costs. And when I went back and reread this the speech i wondered you know did the man anticipate you know if not donald trump then something something like it uh and other times we know he said things to interviewers to the effect that he wished he didn't have to continue the war um given that you know fewer die from terrorism than from slipping in the bathtub or you know texting on the roads or what we would now say from domestic versions of terrorism. Um, and yet he, he was constrained. And the whole purpose of that speech was to basically rationalize endless war um, in this humane form. So why, why that outcome? You know, Nando's already said that 
you know, the ordinary Americans don't have a lot of, of skin in the game, uh, except in so far as they're paying through, you know, to the tune of trillions of dollars. And the opportunity cost is enormous. And of course, Bernie makes that point constantly. That doesn't seem like it's good enough to get Congress to stop voting through the war credits year in, year out, even like at the height of impeaching Trump, when the parties are at one another's throats, they get together and vote out trillions. Um, so I would say the following, you know, Obama was the first of three presidential candidates in a row who understood that um, Americans are sick of, of these wars, or at least some of them. Um, and as you point out, Obama won the Democratic primary in 2008 against Hillary Clinton um, and won the election in part because he was seen as a peace candidate of a kind. Donald Trump emerged as the front runner amongst the Republicans when he took the radical step for them in March 2016 of speaking out against the Iraq war and claiming falsely that he'd always opposed it. And Joe Biden, um, after Trump, you know, had uh, beaten Hillary again, uh, in part, many factors, because she was associated with militarism. Um, Joe Biden kind of learned his lesson and came out against forever war in his campaign. So I think we should recognize that in terms of electoral legitimation, we have a lot to go on. The trouble is that the politicians answer to higher powers, you know, the military industrial complex, the blob and the beltway experts who don't find wars they don't like. Um, and I think at the core is the political fear that another terrorist strike on the so-called homeland will, you know, will crash their presidencies. I think if we could get them to address that, um, we, we might make more headway with the kind of the generals and Raytheon at all and the, the beltway experts, you know, Joe Biden did stand all of those forces down in choosing to withdraw. The trouble is that it was in the name of a pivot to a new Cold War with China and a promise of endless counterterror. So I think for the left, the question is, how do we get kind of these, um, these politicians to feel the heat of a kind of, you know, American skepticism with these wars, which don't benefit us, not only set the world back, but the country itself. I'm curious, you, you, your book came out in September, so I'm guessing you weren't writing it up until the very last day. So you, you probably wrote it before the Afghanistan pullout actually happened. Um, I'm curious your reaction to, I guess, the reaction, because um, this is something that Kale and I spoke about and that Kale was kind of um, stunned by the, 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 the media's kind of blanket bloodthirstiness when it came to, um, you know, staying in Afghanistan, um, even as, for example, I mean, even as like the, the, the last drone strike in Afghanistan or whatever killed like 10, 10, like a family of 10, including six or seven children. And the media, even the military had to admit that it was just a, a whoopsie daisy. Um, right. what was your reaction to, I guess, the reaction to Afghanistan and why do you think the media is so like just so widespread 
um, top to bottom, conservative, liberal, you know, New York Times, CBS, whatever. It's just like it seems like every single one was just like treating this as like a a, a, a huge betrayal, mistake, uh, or you know, gaff or, or whatever. Like, what, what, what? Why is that? Well, I I share Kale's uh, you know view of this, and I'll just you know say it in different words. I'll just maybe start with a, a kind of hint of generosity that at least for many journalists who spent 20 years kind of sourcing um, in Afghanistan, they have, you know, contacts and friends uh, for whose lives they feared. Uh, and that, that may have led them to kind of declare a state of emergency for the country Um rather than focus on the problem they were actually concerned about. But I'm afraid that it goes beyond that because you've obviously had a lot of warmongering journalists who've done a lot of work in, in the most mainstream publications, including liberal publications like the New York Times and the New Yorker, um, to promote war. Um, and then you have the kind of, you know, chattering class of, so-called national security experts. And that was amazing. Um, and and I, I completely share Kale's kind of outrage on, on this because it was like a bout of, of imperial nostalgia um, amongst a, mm -hmm. a large group of people who just don't think America is supposed to lose wars. Um, the, the amazing thing, though, was that you know, the Taliban had conquered much of Afghanistan long since. And Obama had, you know, having done a surge in Afghanistan mistakenly at the very beginning of his presidency in 2009, had pulled troops from 100 to 7,000 with Trump pulling 2,000 more. So, you know, Biden was left with a... A, only a little bit of the work of withdrawal that prior presidents had already begun and nearly completed, Trump being blocked by the generals and others. Um, and of course, it's true that people were surprised by how quickly uh, our, the friendly government there fell um, on our departure. But I think that most of the commentary was just kind of you know, not paying, not about not paying attention while most of the country already fell to the Taliban and the Taliban put themselves in very good position, you know, no matter what we did or even if we stayed. Um, and of course, this also led to kind of re-experience the, the American version of the trauma of the end of, of an earlier phase of empire in 1975 when um, you know, we, we, we failed to keep another friendly government propped up and, and engaged in disorderly withdrawal. So I, I think it was more kind of, um, a kind of like a pretty ephemeral moment, which was mostly revealing about the, the, the way that people have not adjusted to recent history of an empire in decline that can exert its will. Um, that nonetheless seems to be pivoting to a Cold War with China. Um, but it's as if they were still in the Cold War when, you know, their expectation was of kind of just 
dominance without, you know, response. And sadly, we're not there. Um, you know, sadly, in the sense that, like, it, it's so long ago. And these people are nostalgic for a time that, you know, it, it's, it's as if they've kind of not been paying attention. Um, and, and, so, and yet I think we're beyond that. I think um, people have now processed Afghanistan. Actually, the risk is that they could forget it quickly because that wasn't the last drone strike. Um, and actually Biden's incentives are now going to be to engage in more counterterror precisely because there'll be perceptions the Taliban isn't controlling terrorist threats emanating from there and, of course, other places. Right. That makes sense. Um, I So I think it's a lot of, so far, the uh, what you've been talking about and a lot of the explanation for this this transformation has been domestic. And But I, I do want to maybe ask about maybe the uh, uh, external constraints, maybe we can call them. Um, because, you know, illusion to, to American empire, I mean, obviously there's been, you know, a number of major empires not too long ago where um, a little over 100 years ago, you know, uh, Great Britain had, you know, uh, a large portion, I think, what was it, like a third of the world under uh, uh, British control in one form or another. Um, you know, the Europeans had uh, empires and uh, colonies uh, throughout the world. Um, the one that obviously gets, you know, the most fame is the is the uh, scramble for Africa. And, um, and not to go into, you know, any kind of old arcane imperial history, but the point just being that... Um, you know, at that time, they had the means to effectuate and to create those empires that over the course of the 20th century, the, you know, the U.S. has been successful in uh, intervening um, around the world in uh, using military and uh, both political, well, I guess, political, military and economic coercion. Um, but the U.S. was not able to, you know, have colonies by the time, you know, by the end of the, the Second World War. Um and now, you know, the U.S. can't even defeat, uh, you know, the Taliban. Uh, you know, it's not it's not even a state. They don't even have a state. It's like, um, you know, uh, this kind of rogue group. Um, how has maybe the, the transformation of, um, honestly, I mean, just kind of the, both like the growth of like global capitalism, um, you know, because... Uh, we look at Afghanistan, we say, we can't, def- you know, they can't defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan. I don't really count the Taliban as like, they're not capitalists or something. But when you look at somewhere like Iran, which is like a, you know, a developed country, or at least much more so than um, Afghanistan, uh, it's like unimaginable, or even even like China, like, it seems like the, you know, in some ways, like the actual constraints that are put on, you know, like what it would take to actually wage those wars. And most likely, you know, if Afghanistan is the example that it wouldn't be the, like there wouldn't be successes coming out of these conflicts. Uh, how has that affected and, and shaped, you know, this turn to um, uh, humane warfare? OK, so I, I appreciate that question because it allows me to kind of put it even further in a kind of long view. You know, <laughs> you're absolutely right that um, America is the latest you know, empire and hegemon, but it had a lot of examples. And in fact, in the 40s, you know, there was a, a big discourse of kind of Britain on the wane handing over its kind of world leadership to 
the United States, which of course had once been, you know, part of it, part of its empire uh, to begin with. Um, but you know, the story I tell is kind of of, of a pivotal moment in the '60s through 1980s, and here's why: um, you you have a quadrupling of the number of states, um, and those new states, um, while their their main goals are not to make war more humane, do support that goal. Um, and no wonder, because they've been on the receiving end of brutal imperial war for centuries, um, whether it's, you know, um, from the British or, or Dutch or French empires uh, or from America and the Philippines um, before it decolonized it in in 1945. Um, and you have the West Europeans at the same time who are kind of washing their hands of their crimes uh, and allowing the United States to protect them uh, through NATO and other arrangements. And so they're on board with humane war too, because they don't fight war, uh, certainly not as regularly uh, as they once did. And you have West Europeans who are willing to kind of like um, take the high road, you know, uh, after having been on the low road and kind of, you know, uh, never atoning for all of the crimes, but uh, agreeing with the global South that um, there ought to be some rules, especially when it comes to these practices that empires pioneered of kind of colonial bombardment um, for order's sake. Um, which America, you know, perpetrated itself um, in World War II and then in Korea and then Vietnam with the loss of so much life. Finally, I mentioned the kind of internal American factors. Um, I would just add a cultural change that kind of, I think, um, can't be restricted to just an American view, um, although it, it was really important in this country too. And it's it's sort of like, um, while pacifism and, and a broader anti-war politics was on the wane um, after its apogee in the later 60s, um, there was a new concern for kind of civilian suffering in war. Um, and my main explanation of that in the book is that the post-colonial states demand a kind of deracialization of the of the world order. The rules, you know, about war had been, you know, about protecting whites prior to this period. And there were almost no rules when it came to, you know, fighting Asians or Africans or people who were non-Christians like Muslims. Um, and that was just not, you couldn't, you couldn't adopt that view formally anymore. And moreover, you know, the the West had a kind of self-education in um, remembering th that the Holocaust was the worst thing that happened in World War II about the ways in which states can, you know, you know, kill lots of civilians, not just, you know, lead soldiers to die, but, um, you know, cre create atrocious harm for civilians. And it's in this context that, you know, there's just a big new consensus um, around like the, 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 uh, 
how abominable cruelty is, especially physical cruelty and in, 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 in atrocity, crimes against humanity, genocide, you know, in, in war. And all of this leads to um, a, a kind of reorientation long before September 11th and the kinds of war that people find acceptable. Now, of course, I'm not at all denying that the war on terror as it was fought was, was brutal, but it was less brutal than centuries of genocidal colonial war or Korea or Vietnam. Um, and that's because of the hard work that was done, you know, by expanding, you know, who counts in the world, who gets a state, whether, you know, only whites are protected by law, you know, it, uh, and whether, you know, different races and religion ought to, ought to matter. Still, in the end, I, you know, I, I buy your, your, your general framing that um, we have to look, let's say, economically. I'm not sure I would look at, at the Afghan situation. I mean, we can't engage in cultural stereotypes and say that, you know, it's the graveyard of empire and no empire has ever succeeded there since, you know, it's not a static country. And um, there's been a lot of kind of really interesting developments, especially in urban areas in Afghanistan. Um, and we can't kind of just say that it was it was hopeless that the Taliban, you know, was always going to come back. Um, and maybe there were alternatives that would have left, you know, people freer there and elsewhere than living under the drones or visited by special forces, or back under, you know, Taliban rule. So I, I, I want to focus on humane war as as something that is, you know, a, a relative achievement, but as something that um, is is helping kind of um, enable the continuation of lots of wars we we don't need to fight, shouldn't fight, shouldn't allow. Um, and it's very interesting, of course, that an African-American president um, authorizes this big transformation in the midst of the war on terror. I'm not um, in this book trying to give like a total explanation of the economic foundations of kind of American war, or the continuation of war generally. I'm just looking at this really interesting moral phenomenon where people can talk themselves into endless war and, you know, take solace in the fact that at least it's not as bad as before, which even if it's true, doesn't justify the kind of continuation of this violence and the surveillance, which is also pretty central to American war uh, going forward. Yeah. It strikes me as like, um, yeah, almost like a like a dystopian sci-fi, uh, you know, where it's like this got this like kind of human face, or and right. and, and and it just like a, allows us to kind of forget about it. I guess what what a what what do you pretend uh, is is going to happen in the nearish or or midterm um, future? Not the midterm elections, like in the in the yep. medium yep. term. I don't give a shit about the midterm elections. Uh, in, the medium, in the medium term, uh, uh, w- with regards to war making, because I mean, I think you're right that most people like are are tired of it. But I think that with the drone thing, it's so weird 
you know, like it's just so weird the idea that like robots fight our wars now. Um, that it, the people like accept it on some kind of in a bleak way, like in a just kind of like a right. Uh, you know, well, you know, <laughs> what, what are we gonna do about it? <laughs> There's right. robots now right. just like flying in the sky, shooting missiles at people. Uh, right, and and that it seems like in some cases, I mean, there's been some studies that say that the drones are actually more effective at killing people. That the kind of the contradiction here of the humane option ended up ending up becoming even more destructive. So, I mean, it, it depends on that point. I mean, it's really important because it kind of depends on how we calculate these things. Certainly it's true that it, as war goes on, um, the fact that, you know, the violence is, is less radical all along starts not to make much sense because, you know, it, over, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, it ends up amounting to a lot. There's no doubt that we should never trivialize, you know, how, how, um, how much violence that American war still involves, even in this so-called humane form. I do think we have to grant that um, it's, 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 you know, in, in a kind of disturbing and insidious way, as Nando said, it's a kind of caring form of violence. Um, and, and that's what I want to, um, focus on, you know, by the same token, we shouldn't understate or leave out the kind of psychic consequences, even when you're not struck of living under the drones. And, you know, that's really what motivated me to do this study and write this book because, you know, we're familiar with the strategy of making hay, uh, uh, of dirty war. I mean, that, if anything works to raise consciousness and the absence of like the exposure of Americans themselves, it's dramatizing the carnage. And of course that was the response to the drone strike the other day. Um, But you know, there's this paradox that when we restrict ourselves to that tactic, we're kind of inviting the government to try harder um, of course, there'll always be bad apples and honest mistakes in war, but they may just try to make the war more invisible or indeed more humane, take more, even more care. That's why I try to kind of reanimate Vietnam and kind of a long tradition before that insisted that if you keep war from happening, you keep war crimes from happening. But the reverse is not true. Um, and we've switched mm-hmm. to a tactic, even on the left, where, you know, not wrongly, we're tempted to, like, focus on the residual violence. And I just want to warn people that while that could work, it did work in Vietnam when you already had an anti-war movement of great significance. In our time, focusing on the violence has led the state to continue the war by other means. Um, and... Uh, you know, that, that is really scary. Many of us are familiar with the opening pages of Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish, where he compares the um, flaying and dismemberment of a, of a regicide under the old regime to the humane reformed prison uh, after, uh, after the kings had gone and, you know, the French Revolution had happened. And you know, Foucault's perspective is that domination got worse. Now, I wouldn't go that far, but um, 
I just want to say that moving from relatively more to relatively less brutality isn't doesn't mean you're moving from less to uh, more to less domination. Actually, with the centrality of surveillance to our new form of war, you're moving to more. And even if you're not struck uh, by a drone, you're living in a way that you know no nobody should tolerate even if it's increasingly nonviolent. And so that's like my main, that's what I want to dramatize without at all trivializing, you know, that the drones kill uh, and they kill the wrong people and they kill too many of them. The drones kill. I think that's a good place to end it. Um, Samuel Moyne, thank you so much for joining us. If you come back a third time, you get a nice little medal. Um, <laughs> you know, I think you'd be our first three Pete. Uh, guests, uh, hopefully you don't have to write a whole book about it just just to just to come on again. Or we'll a, have you a on. set of you know, steak you knives, like <laughs> you know, Jacobin steak knives. Except I don't eat meat. Yeah, so. you know what? I'm I'm gonna message Boscar about that. That's a all right. That's it's, yeah. I I think the merch can go in new directions. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So next time, just write an article. You know, like right. we'll have you on. You don't have to write a whole book about it. Okay, you know? sounds good. It's fine. All right. But we appreciate your work. People should check out uh, Samuel Moyne's latest, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Uh, Sam, thanks for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. I appreciate your time. Bye. Uh, The comrade Obama, dude. The more time (laughs) goes on, the worse Obama looks and, like, the worse his legacy uh, Uh, That's very ageist of you, Mike, uh, of Nando, to, to say that. Why was it ageist? He looks worse over time. That's so you can't. Oh that's, yeah, that's so mean. He to, does. No, I know. No, I'm joking. Yeah, uh, yeah. He he just uh, he's a real. He's not a good. Not no good. Um, real <laughs> kind of uh, Trojan horse, uh, or I don't know what I don't know like what the analogy is, but it's just it it strikes me as he's like uh, he he came in at a moment and he came in with a packaging that Mm -hmm. i don't know really just kind of gave a nice face to some of the most awful things in the world and uh you know that's almost more evil in a way than um than doing just the the bad thing with a bad face um i mean he's i mean for you know if if we were on the other side of this if we're like you know we're you know like big capitalists or something uh or not just full disclosure, but if we were, you know, someone like a politician like Obama is like a once in a lifetime goldmine of like a guy that is like not even hiding the fact that like he supports their policies, like that there's tons of documentation from the time uh, that's basically saying that you know he agrees with like the basic tenets of you know like neoliberal economic reforms of uh austerity um you know uh yes like so the i think like one of the biggest ruses like in the you know is this you know um and i you know i take sam's point like i i'm sure obama's like a uh a true believer in the sense that um like he probably truly does have some self-conception of like what humanitarianism is and like him being a humanitarian uh but then you know like obviously in action and policy and in politics, you know, like in in a way where like, it wasn't like just all backroom deals or something like, you know, he, 
it, even in like even like in the people that he brought into his circle i mean within like uh you know a month of him ele- like being elected uh his entire economic team in the like at the height of the you know of the the financial crash oh it's all you know it's all being staffed by um by citibank and so like there's no surprise it's just like i think it's it's frustrating because he was such a good politician and i think he like he was someone that like earnestly you know, like thought is shit instinct. So, yeah. No the 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 institutionalization of drone warfare um, just seems like it's going to have far-reaching consequences that are, um, you know, that will take decades to not just understand, but definitely dismantle <laughs> um, the robots in the sky, dude. They have missiles. Let, don't let them become sentient uh, because then we're really fucked. Um, but yeah. Um, all so right. Actually, well, does anyone have any questions? So actually, no, that exact last point um, brings us to a super chat question that was asked. Uh, and so we have a little bit of time. Um, so if you have a question that you want to ask us, um, either send us a super chat or if you're a member, uh, Jacobin YouTube member, just send us a question. Um, cause you've already paid. Uh, but I'm going to start with this first question, um, which I think leads well, uh, out of what you just said. Uh, eclectic asks the U S public has less of a stomach for ground wars yet. There's little public resistance to increase military spending. Will that ever change or will the war machine keep growing ad infinitum? You know, I remember the Iraq war protests really well. They were huge, millions of people, and the Iraq war raged on. Um, I just think that, um, sadly, the, um, you know, and we talk about this a lot, like the the only thing that's going to change any of this kind of stuff is a real change in the balance of power of, you know, regular people vis-a-vis powerful people. Uh, if you change that balance of power, I think that much like your uh, argument that it would, that it would kind of help and, uh, racism, uh, it would help. And this kind of just senseless slaughter, um, of people all over the world. Um, but, but the sort of, um, from a public mobilization standpoint, you know, they've shown that they can withstand it pretty easily. Um, and that there's just, I think that, I don't think anyone supports, I mean, I think very few people support kind of the drone, um, death machine. Uh, but there's resignation that there's just nothing we can do about it. You know, no one, no one gets up in arm. No one, no one likes the fact that we spend so much money on our military. Uh, but there's resignation that it's not even debated in Congress. It's not even like, it's just, it's just a thing that sails through. Um, what we're really debating is now is whether we pay for Israel's fucking, uh, shit or not, you know, like, but our shit we're paying, you know, and, uh, and there's just resignation, which I think is just a symptom of the broader resignation and the broader weakness of, of, of regular people in this, uh, current environment and current system. And that, you know, as kind of unsatisfying as it sounds like the war machine will not be stopped unless we really have a new organized militant, you know, popular mobilized class of people. I don't know. Like there's just no, there's no other way around it. Yeah. Um, I do think 
see, we it, we had um, Noam Chomsky on about a month ago, and, and actually, he made the argument. Uh, it was there was a nice moment uh, between Jen and Noam, where Jen was like, "I was in the uh, Iraq War protests, and everyone knows it did nothing." And Noam was like, "No, it actually like it actually did quite a bit. Though, like, it seemed like we have documents now that say that the Bush administration was considering actually using nukes in the Middle East." Uh, now that might just be, you know, politicians that might just be, mm-hmm. you know, war game kind of stuff. I don't know. But the point being, I do think, I, I think we can at least make the minimal claim that anti-war movements, uh, while they may, they might not have yet stopped a war like Vietnam or like Iraq, I do think they pose some pretty significant costs on the politicians uh, where you know, it does, in fact, limit what the options are on the table. And whether or not the actual literal nuclear option was on the table, I'm not, I don't know. Um, Noam was convinced that it was, and I tend to, you know, I think Noam is right about like 99.9% of things. So um, I'm, I'll take his word on that one. But uh, I I do think the the question of like, will the war machine keep growing forever uh, if it's not stopped by uh, anti-war protests, which I'm skeptical of, at least as they've existed currently, I do think it's possible that it could stop at some point, just insofar as, you know, I think the ruling class of the U.S., for instance, um, you know, has, I think, less appetite for military conflict than they did, let's say, you know, uh, certainly a few decades ago, most certainly, you know, like, uh, you know, a century ago that that doesn't make them better people. I mean, I, like it's I think these are some of the most evil people we've ever had in the ruling class that are literally about to drive us off the cliff with climate change. But I do think that they find you don't need military to get the the outcomes you want as often that you can, in fact, through either political means or more often the case, just through economic means, through sanctions, through debt, uh, things like that, that you can, um, through trade, you know, who's trading with whom, who gets locked out of the trade networks. Um, I do think uh, that is probably the more preferred way of dealing with international politics. And at a certain point, I don't know if it'll be within our lifetimes, but at a certain point, I could see it conceivable that, you know, um, ruling classes, assuming we're still in capitalism, don't in fact need you know, these massive military arms in order to carry out what they want to carry out. It might just, it might mean there's some stockpiling still. They might still need it as like a, you know, do the economic option or else. But I think it will become increasingly less useful. But I could be wrong. That's just, that's very no, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I mean, I think you're right on a rational basis. And I think on the long term, that's going to that that's probably right, and you're seeing like you know the emergence of China. Like they don't seem to need uh, a global military empire to assert you know their little bit of of dominance, and um, you know, and I think that uh, they probably look at the United States as like you know like you guys are just, <laughs> what are you guys doing? <laughs> like why are you doing this? <laughs> this is so stupid. Um, you know, like you don't need to do this. <laughs> um, and I think that. Um, you know what I what I worry about is that like um, I I worry about this a lot that that, that the, the psychological blow to people in the United in the American ruling class um, is going to be weird and it's going to manifest itself in all kinds of uh, 
weird ways when when they realize that like the China that, that you know China is surpassing the United States in terms of economic dominance, um, and that I I don't I don't rule out like just kind of senseless violence um, as a kind of um, wounded animal lashing out. Um, uh, you know, because it has all the, it has all the, the weapons and, you know, they're there and they're very tempting to use when you have them. Um, I'm not saying like they would provoke a direct confrontation with China. I'm just more, more thinking like, you know, they'll find some, you know, some poor little state to just beat up on, um, as just like, uh, you know, kind of like, I don't know the, the French or something, uh, you know, as they were like dwindling in their empire, um, you know, in Southeast Asia, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I find it, uh, you know, I, I find that possibility very real. I mean, I find the, the, you know, we've talked about it before that the, that the American war machine doesn't make like a whole lot of sense, um, even on a rational basis. Like it's, it's not like it gets a huge amount, um, from, from these, you know, from like bombing the shit out of Niger and, you know, sending special forces to Yemen or whatever, you know, like, like, it's not like they get that much, uh, out of it, but it does seem that there is a kind of ingrained, um, violent ideology that, uh, and, and plus all the toys are lying around and that uh, they're very tempting to use when you have them. Um, so yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it might be the case that, and, and so I should clarify something because when I'm saying ruling class, I mean like capitalists, those people who own all of the productive assets in society. And so it might be the case that the state might in the same way that there's disagreements between the state and capital domestically, there might that might bore out in uh, international politics as well, where um, the ruling class might over time have less of an appetite, and the state there's like state actors, you know, uh, politicians or you know people you know in the Pentagon or wherever that uh, because of the fact that there there are institutional um, mechanisms in place, for instance, within. Uh, the Pentagon for like moving up career ladders and, and, you know, investing in certain kinds of like horrible war toys. Uh, it might be the case that they, they do still want war, even when the ruling class is like starting to put the brakes on and saying, uh, it's not, do we really, is this really a good use of, of money right now? I, I would rather, you know, make some more profit somewhere else. So it, I don't know. And again, it's, it's all very speculative, but it's, um, I think useful at least to think of, I, I think we on the left end up spending and understandably so we spend a lot of time thinking of it kind of from below of like, how do we deal with like this massive war machine and, and, you know, how can the left effectively combat it? Um, and unfortunately I think a lot of the answers to that are typically, uh, the left, at least as it currently exists, can't really combat it that much outside of, you know, I, I outside of what we've already said, where I do think, protests have mattered it's just they maybe can't stop wars um but that being said you know i think it's important to think through you know like what are the the internal contradictions among elites among the ruling class on the one end and then maybe the political class the actual political the politicians and state people on the other end um jj well, says just take my blood money watching wow. from work thanks jj nice <laughs> thank you jj yeah, put us on the speaker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think I'm just double checking to see that I haven't overlooked anyone, any one of our viewers. But um, uh, I think we're done. Uh, thanks everyone for watching. Um, Thank you for Sam watching. Moyne. Thank you, Sam Moyne. 
next week we'll have we'll have uh, it'll be me and Jen Pan. That's right. Uh, and uh, we have a good guest. Should I say? We got Matt Brunig. Yeah. People like Matt. <gasps> Matt Brunig. Love Matt Brunig. He's our favorite boy. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we'll catch you next week. All righty. Take care. Later.